Welcome to Counter Stories, a show by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Haley Lee, owner of the Other Media Group and producer of this show. I'm Don Eubanks, associate of Dendros Group and member of the Malax Band of Ojibwe Indians. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the State of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I share are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. Our fourth member, Anthony Galloway, cannot be with us today, and we hope him all the best, but we do have a really wonderful guest with us, and we're excited to talk to her. So, Sarah, I'll have you introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Sarah Lancaster, and I am the 2022 Minnesota Teacher of the Year. Yay! Congratulations! (laughs) I was so excited to hear, but you know what? Actually, when when I heard, like, all the headlines were, were, you know, first API teacher of the year ever in Minnesota. And I was just like, can that be right? I found out last year was the first time that it was um, a Latinx person who got the right. teacher of the mm-hmm. year. So I was, that was so surprising to me. Was that surprising to anybody else? Not really. I'm, I'm not sure we've had an American Indian teacher of the year. And we've been here much longer than than most Asian populations. So, so you know, I mean, I, I I hear your surprise, Hilly, but you know, there's many many others who are still waiting. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> and I, not to take anything away, because I think it's 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 uh, I think it's totally um, celebratory that Sarah got this reward. And I think what made it even more interesting is the fact that she's from that little tiny town called Onamia, Minnesota, where <laughs> you slam on the brakes and you can slide through on a wet night. So. <laughs> yeah, for me, I mean, I um, when I read headlines such as that, you know, the first and then we're in 2022, I just think... <sighs> Really, though? Really? Really? You know, <laughs> why has it taken this long? And it's rhetorical, right? It's a rhetorical right. question. Right. Um, but it's it's also an indicator of just the systemic barriers in my mind that continue to keep our BIPOC leaders and folks uh, in the shadows, you know, and, and not mm-hmm. being able to, to get the recognition for their achievements and leadership that they've had. So to some degree, it's good to call it out. But at the same time, I have a level of disappointment and frustration that this is still happening as the first and the only, right? Right. Um, Yeah. Plus, we talk about like teacher shortages and not being able to retain teachers of color. You know, that definitely plays into this as well. We're not even recognizing our teachers of color who are out here doing great things every year we're recognizing you know not that i mean obviously all teachers should should be awarded every year um but you know i that place i i I feel like that that is very connected into why and how we retain teachers of color as well what do you think sarah i think it was surprising to me to hear that i was the first aapi um someone of AAPI heritage to receive this award, especially I work in the community of Onamia and it's currently at 58% Native American. And so I make those connections with these kids. But if you look at the statistics for teachers of color in Minnesota, it's remained stagnant at 5% since 
2010. And so why haven't we matched the diversity of our students with the diversity of the staff? So 5% in 2010, and we're still hanging out at about 5 or 6% teachers of color in the state of Minnesota. And I'm just curious about why that is. So an AAPI is um, American Asian Pacific Islander. And so it was just so interesting to think that there's been nobody before me that identified with that ethnic, that had that ethnic identity or culture. Um, and this isn't something we can fix overnight. You know, we say we need more educators of color. We need to bring more teachers. We need to license more teachers who identify as a person of color. We need more BIPOC educators. But this isn't something that we can fix tomorrow. It's not something we can fix in a year or two years. We have to figure out how to reach out to these people because they're out there. And Don, you've got that teaching ex experience as well. I mean, what made you go from, you know, being in the field to teaching? Kind of like Sarah's story, I, I uh, attended the program that I eventually went back and taught in. So having that connection. So, you know, being a social worker, there's kind of a set curriculum. and um, But being able to add that, all that work experience on top of what you learn in the classroom I think happens, I think it happens on both levels, but I, I think it's different than, than in public school. And as Sarah was, was talking about, you know, the fact that there's what, about 5% teachers in, in public schools, particularly here in Minnesota. And as she said that, the thought that ran through my mind is one, when I was in Minneapolis public schools, when I attended school. Um, there was not much in the curriculum that reflected who I was as a Black Indigenous individual. The stories I learned fit the American standard history that we're, that we're taught, which kind of downplays what America really did to Native Americans. And it's still happening, unfortunately, in, 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 in places like Mille Lacs County, which I'm, you know, we're talking about something different in the recent... Uh, uh, judges ruling that um, that the Mille Lacs ban uh, reservation still exists. They never went away. So I'm saying all that just to get to the point that there was nothing in Minneapolis public education that would have enticed me to come back and teach in it. Until the educational system actually incorporates values and histories of all its peoples, and, you know, especially the original inhabitants of this land, until they do that, what is to entice teachers of color to come back and teach in those institutions? So I think if they, if, if uh, education begins to reflect that, and, you know, in, in our current time, we have, in my mind, a small minority of parents who are objecting to having any kind of of education that will hurt the feelings of their, their poor little white kids. You know, they don't want them to learn what grandma and grandma did against blacks, natives, Asians, and everyone else in this country. Uh, they don't want that taught. So, you know, we're, we're at a, a juncture here in education where they're fighting to get teachers of color more represented in our schools. At the same time, we have parents who want to control the curriculum and what what can be taught not taught in, in our schools? I mean, how do we how do you pull those two together in, in that kind of environment and entice more 
teachers of color and, and American Indians to come into the field and teach. What do you think, Sarah? I think it was interesting that you mentioned that 1855 treaty. I made it a point to mention that that was something that's been happening in our county and how it reflects the diverse population of students that I teach. So I needed people to know that that's the population of students that I'm working with. And that's important. Being the only licensed teacher of color in my district, I make sure to look at every curriculum we adopt through a lens of making sure that this reflects what our students should be learning. There was a lesson two weeks ago that I taught from our science curriculum, and it was teaching about shadows. And it was a perfectly fine lesson, except for it wanted me to take my students outside and have them trace themselves with chalk. And being a person of um, color in my school and being very up to date on, you know, what beliefs a lot of our Native American students have, I knew absolutely not, I'm not going to do that. So I made sure to contact our um, Native American community liaison. And I said, hey, I've got this lesson and this is a huge issue with Native American beliefs, especially in our area. What can I do as an alternative? But if I hadn't been in this school, absolutely any other teacher would have taken that lesson and be like, all right, kids, let's go outside, trace yourselves on the sidewalk. And they wouldn't have seen an issue with that. And so that's why it's important that we need people who are aware of these things and who can connect with our kids and reflect their beliefs and their ideas in schools to work with them. So Sarah, you know, you've been and it's a great example, and, and I'm going to ask you to unpack that a little bit for, for listeners who may not be tracking as to why that is a problem with the shadow. And uh, We're familiar with it, but you know, it'd be valuable to hear you say that. Of course. So living in this area, I mean, it was only natural that I would eventually have some family that you know, married into the community. And so I actually do have two Native American, my nephews, my two nephews are um, Native American. And so I may have a slightly better understanding because I connect with the community through family now as well. Um, But just being partnered with the Native American community liaison and um, we also hired um, a Native American artist and she works through our 21st century grant. I understand that from, from what I understand is that tracing the outline of a Native American student um, can compromise beliefs with their spirit and leaving part of of themselves behind. And so I knew immediately, like, even if it was a doubt in my mind, I would say, absolutely not. I need to check this out. I need to look at this through a cultural lens. And even if I, you know, if I'm incorrect, I need to know too, because Native American is not my ethnic identity. And so I need to check with those who are aware and those who can inform me and let me know how can I make this right for my students. And so I remember at a training we did um, that that was mentioned that we should not trace the outline of Native American students. You should not, you know, step over them. You should not step over belongings. And so those things are communicated pretty well in our district, but I was still unclear. So I did check with our Native American um, community liaison. And I, I would like to mention that, that this is a ever evolving um ever-evolving sharing of those type of things and 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 i'll i'll explain a little bit about that so it wasn't until 1978 with the religious freedom act that uh, native americans in this country were able to practice their spirituality again and the religious beliefs without being arrested so in a country that was supposedly founded on religious freedom 
um, we were the one group whose religion and spirituality was against the law to practice since 1890 until 1978. Now, when those type of things happen in our community, we were taught at a very young age that there are certain things we don't talk around, we don't talk about when we're around, and the term we used for, I think for, for white folks was chumuk or chumukamat. And it, you know, and it actually has nothing to do with the color. It, it, it's describing a long knife. And, um, but we were taught that you don't, there are certain things you do not talk about around other people because we could get in trouble. Well, that is beginning to break down. And now it's going to be a process because it's hard to change those kind of traditions that are passed down verbally. And so I think, you know, the fact that the liaison and others from Malax were able to share that with you is something that would not have been talked about just 20 years ago. And so, um, you know, and then there are other kind of cultural values and nuances often that we would, you know, general kind of things that we would point out. Because so often, you know, in, in our community, um, to show respect to someone else or to show respect to an elder, you would you would glance at them, but you would defer, you would look away. And that is to show respect. But that often would be misinterpreted as not being engaged because the dominant culture teaches you to stare somebody directly in the eyes, which is totally different in our community. To show respect, you look away. And, and uh, so there are some cultural values and mores that are misunderstood that often then would get our children identified incorrectly, not being aggressive, not being engaged, not, you know, when in fact they totally were and they were doing it in, in the cultural manner. So I think that's excellent that you reach out and, and that these resources are there. Um, and I think anything that you can do, continue to do to build that understanding between the kids in, at Onamia School and even your teachers. You're listening to Counter Stories. I'm Hui Li with co-hosts Don Eubanks and Luz Maria Frias with special guest Sarah Lancaster. This show is supported by Ampers and the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For a full conversation, please visit counterstories.com. Sarah, you are undertaking a heck of a role, again, as the only BIPOC licensed teacher in that district, that you are modifying and ensuring that the curricula materials for your students and my understanding is for, for the other grades as well, right? To make sure that they're culturally sensitive. That's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's mm-hmm. a big undertaking for you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and often enough, that's what happens in our BIPOC communities, right? Is we see a need, the, the employer in this setting is your, you know, the school district hasn't, recognize the same level by way of a financial commitment and and hiring someone that specializes and will do that as a dedicated role mm-hmm. in their capacity. Yes. So this is in addition to above and beyond, not only you being a first grade teacher, but it's my understanding you're also coaching track and volleyball and speech. Like this is a lot. So help us understand that and and I mean, there's many reasons, of course, that you were selected as Teacher of the Year, but it's I, I, I read that and I was overwhelmed just thinking about what does your day look like in terms of work-life balance. But going back to just 
taking on that additional responsibility. Um, help us understand that. So I've sat on every curriculum selection committee that we've had for this school building since I started here in 2013. So that's reading, that's science, social studies. Um, we selected a new math curriculum. And again, do I see my student population reflected in the stories? Do I see issues with the math problems that are presented or the way it's worded? Is it biased towards language of our kids? We have a lot, you know, if a student is English as a second language, we need to be mindful of that. And so I think it's important for myself to reflect what the students can see in them themselves in multiple capacities. And it is exhausting. I mean, I've coached 20, over 20 seasons and I'm 31 years old, but my students see me out on the field. They see me teaching. They see me in all of these different roles that I play. And I know that they can think, hey, maybe I could do that too. Or maybe I could be someone that grows up and this is a job that I would be interested in because I, growing up in this community, I didn't see anybody that looked like me or had the same cultural beliefs. And if I would have, it would have made a huge impact, but I'm trying to provide that for my students by fulfilling as many roles as I can and also giving each of those roles justice. So that's kind of what, that's kind of my goal in this school. I'm, you know, I'm familiar with the town of Onamia. I was uh, twice commissioner of health and human services for the Mille Lacs band. Um, I used to work with uh, when Marge Anderson was tribal chair before she passed and, um, and have been to Onamia a lot. And, uh, but I'm bringing that up because as I hear you talk, but I can't help think because you know, Onamia is not that big. And um, my, sometimes my experience with, with our white neighbors in Mille Lacs County and the town of Onamia and the surrounding Lake, uh, especially after uh, we we secured our hunting and fishing rights, have not always been um, pristine. Is a I'll choose that word. In fact, I've I've shared on previous podcasts on counter stories that that um, you know, one of the classes I taught at at Metro and the social work program was a comparative racial and ethnic analysis class. So I would use examples and how how sometimes derogatory terms used to describe indigenous populations kind of take a geographic emphasis. And so it was the first time that I worked at Mille Lacs that I ever heard the term timber N. And it just blew me away. And then if you go to North and South Dakota, then it becomes prairie N to be referred to as uh, American Indians and Native Americans. But... I think also there's a political reality that exists in Mille Lacs County with the Mille Lacs band that has not been, uh, sometimes it seems to work out other times Mille Lacs County tends to go out of their way to, um, subjugate almost everything the tribe tries to do to better the, the, um, the area. And, um, and sometimes that plays out in the school. Often when I was commissioner, we would get reports about Onamia School and some of the stuff that they would do um, that was detrimental to our students, our Native American students. So there's a long history of, of, uh, of tense relations sometimes uh, because not every individual in the town of Onamia is as open and willing as you to look at someone else's culture that's different from yours to gain that understanding. 
So you must be like totally isolated at times. I mean, I, I would have to think even just growing up there as you were as a, a mixed race individual couldn't have been easy for you at all in that town. And I'm not trying to open a can of worms, but that's what we talk about on counter stories. I know what that town can be like. And it was, it, it's, it couldn't have been easy for you at all. You know, it's interesting, Don, that you mentioned those terms, because those are terms that were thrown around at some of my friends in high school. And if you were Asian, then you were a sand. And, and so, and I had told somebody, it's like, you're, it's like, you're right there with me, because I had told someone a story of that. And I said, this is, these are things that happened in high school. And I grew up here and I went to school here from kindergarten all the way through 12th grade. And so, and my, our Native American community liaison is wonderful. And we're, you know, we're working together to, to kind of break down these barriers of isolating communities based on race or ethnicity. And so we've done a few things like our teachers have gone up to the community center on the reservation and just to connect with people on common ground, or we've done different things. Like we have a, we have a powwow in our school. It's K-12 and it's, we've done it every year. And so it's just, it's so amazing to kind of bridge those gaps between the two different groups or three or however many um, identify in our community, but just to, to say like, we just need to communicate. We just need to connect and, and really figure out what we can do. Because if we don't, the students are the one that the students are the ones that are going to miss out. I mean, this is for the success of our students. Kind of carrying out that theme that Don just raised, I, I was thinking something similar from a slightly different perspective, which is what are your coping strategies and mechanisms that you can offer? Because if we think about it in terms of our audience, and we have a, an audience across the state, but certainly also across the country, there are a lot of onlys out there, right? You are the only, the only licensed BIPOC teacher an entire school district. Um, and I would venture to guess in the town. <laughs> so what are your coping mechanisms and strategies that you can share that would be helpful for folks to, to learn? I think don't be afraid to reach out to those resources. Don't be afraid to, to just communicate. I brought in like the Mille Lacs Band DNR. We did, they came in for like a wild rice presentation in the beginning of the school year. That was amazing. And, and they were so eager to share with the students the language and, and all of these resources that I don't have, but that I can get for my students. I also make sure to reflect the diversity in, in the curriculums that we use. So that's another thing that you can do for your students and, and just talk to your students, see what they identify as, see what's important to them, because you, you're there to reflect what they are learning. And so if they don't see themselves how are they going to invest in that? And then how can we invest in our students? So it's kind of this exchange going on between teachers and students and community. I know that I had a few issues. I had one issue in town, like Donald said, Onamia can be a rough community sometimes. And I was, um, I was denied service at a local store um, by somebody who said, you can go to the next register or get out because I don't serve people like people that look like you. And I took to social media and I put that out there. And the outpouring from the community, especially parents of Native American students, they reached out and they said, my kid was called derogatory terms. My kid was denied service. My kid was, they wanted to pat down my kid. And I thought, this is an eight-year-old child. If, if I have problems 
getting service at a grocery store. What about those eight-year-old kids who don't have that voice yet? And so then we kind of rallied together and um, made sure that they redid discrimination training and made sure that, I mean, that individual no longer works at that particular location um, at that store. But we made sure like this, this isn't, we're not going to be silenced. You cannot do this to people and think that it's okay to treat anyone, regardless of race, socioeconomic status, religion, anything that you cannot treat them less than human. It's one of those um, situations that I think a lot of us find ourselves in, especially when we're the only in, this, in, in you know, whatever area or situation that we're in, that we take on these additional duties because if not us, then who? And I worry for you, Sarah, that you're going to burn out, you know, and I worry so much about all of my crew members and, and burning out. And just I know that you have your own family, your own family that you need to, to take care of. And you're taking time to do this with us. We, you know, early today because you have a you have a play or something right after this. So like your schedule is packed. How do you maintain, you know, your social I mean, your mental health? That's my, my, my biggest concern is when sometimes I put, I end up putting myself in these situations where I, uh, and I say to my husband when he tells me I take on too much, I say, well, if not me, then who? There was no one else there who would see this from an equity standpoint, right? Who is looking at this from, from this lens. So I, I, I took it upon myself to do it because no one else was going to do it. But then I get really angry a few months into doing something where I'm just like, oh, why, why? And I, I get angry at myself. Why did, why did I do this to myself? Why did I say I was going to do this? You know, I should have said no. I shouldn't. I should put my foot down and say I'm not going to do it. Or then I get really mad at, like, in this case, it would be like the school district. Why aren't they hiring somebody? Why aren't they finding somebody? Why aren't they recruiting other people of color to come work here? Why aren't they, you know, how do you manage that? as well as being there for the kids still every day. I'll admit in the first nine years, I, I had a big problem saying no. And I kind of learned over the last few years, I have to prioritize, especially those things that I'm passionate about. And what can I do to make a difference? Cause you know, you said, if not, if not me, then who, but to me, it's if, if not, then when, because it's, it's going to happen. This change has to happen because there are so many populations that are underrepresented and, and it's not going to stay that way. So I want to be a positive movement forward and to represent and to be a platform and to take up the platforms that I'm especially passionate about. Mental health is a big one, especially with the generational trauma in our district. That's a big one. And things like teachers of color, things like rural districts. So I'm really picking and choosing. I did step back. I coached track for eight years and I did step back as a track coach um, I no longer direct high school musicals, but then I kind of also built up a program that I'm hoping to pass on to the next person that that has good participation and people know that, hey, this is something that Mrs. Lancaster was willing to do. It's probably okay. You know, this is a good activity that I can take part in. And so just knowing that if I build something up that I can delegate or pass on those those activities and resources to people. And so it's a lot of self-care when I can get it. And it's a lot of organizational skills, but I think I've grown and gotten a little bit better over the last few years. You talk about your mental health. I also think about the mental health of the students, um, particularly 
as we know the dynamics that Don and, and you have laid out geographically in that area, what kind of support system, if any, has a school district or community offered for our, our children, particularly our, our BIPOC children, our Indigenous children, who make up the majority, right, of the population there in that school? Uh, help us understand that. So right now, mental health is probably the biggest issue that I'm behind because the ratio of counselors and social workers, last I read, was 250 student population to one. And for some districts, that means they don't even have a full-time social worker or counselor. And so in our district, we actually do a a pretty good job in our district. We have um, two different mental health services that we partner with outside of school. Um, And children are six times more likely to receive mental health services in school than compared with the community setting. We also partner with the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe, and we have a social worker working directly with the band. And so that helps us understand through that lens, especially some of those things we might not understand as well, like generational trauma. We have trainings every year. Our community liaison, like I said, our Native American community liaison does trainings every year. And the big, a big focus in our district is how to recognize trauma versus special education because we don't want to overdiagnose. This isn't a disability. This isn't something that's affecting a child in that capacity. It could be mental health or trauma. So I think just recognizing the need in Minnesota and that it's not just in our community and getting those resources to kids, getting in-school services, making sure children have access to counselors or social workers and families have support because for some families, this is not the first generation of children they're raising. I work with so many grandparents, so many aunties, and it's not their children. And so they're taking on multiple roles, just like I am as a coach and a teacher and a mom. These families are raising multiple generations of children. And how do we support them through that capacity? As you were talking about the trauma, um, the mental health workers, the social workers. Well, you know, I have to admit that there are, there are, a couple of former students that went through our social work program that are currently employed at the Mille Lacs Band in their family services program as social workers. But often, often, um, many of the social workers themselves lack the cultural understanding of what it really means to practice social work in the American Indian community. And so even the Mille Lacs Band has a hard time uh, hiring social workers who bring that cultural competency with them. And I would assume that, you know, Onamia Public Schools probably doesn't even consider that in their hiring practice when they look at hiring mental health and social workers. So while those things are in place, I just point that out because often there are still those cultural differences and misunderstandings that although they're there to do good could still be a barrier to helping those children. Do you you understand what I'm trying to say, Sarah? I do. Absolutely. Because I know that the social worker that we did partner with from the Mille Lacs band um, is not a person of color. I, I believe she does not identify as a person of color. And so what that makes me think about is how, who better than the people that live this experience and how do we get those students to then step into these roles in the community because why am I the only person of color why am I the only educator of color and so how do we set up our students 
for success to fill these roles and make sure that we can get them working with the people who need it the most. I, I mean, if we had a social worker on the Mille Lacs band that was Native American, I mean, how valuable would that be? And it's just, it's not happening yet. And why? Why is that not happening yet? How are we not able to get people into these roles or, or because I know, especially with the population of students I have, there are so many out there and I know that there's resources and, and they exist, but, but why can't we get them here? That's, that's like the question that I'm just, that I struggle with every day because they're out there. You know, Marion Wright Edelman, you know, is a famous, uh, well-noted civil rights leader nationally. Um, and one of my favorite quotes from her is, if you can't see it, you can't dream it. So as I listen to you asking those questions and Don's remark, my, my immediate response is, Don, we should get you up there. <laughs> I mean, we should have you, you know, talking to those students and motivating, inspiring those students to go into to social work. I mean, you know, um, it's a full on approach, right? Because Don is, is a well-known and accomplished um, professional in, in that area. Uh, as a practitioner and certainly as faculty, uh, former fa faculty, to be able to just have the youth see someone who attaches, you know, the same values and cultural norms and experiences to them, I think would be incredibly powerful. Um, and I'm not trying to Don, that you've got to go all over the state to do that, you know, but Don's like, um, I retire. Gosh, I know. Right. <laughs> now, I don't disagree with you at all, Luz. I think that, you know, the, the, the two occasions that I was commissioner of uh, health and human services for the band allowed me that opportunity to do that. Um, and as I think about, you know, what you're saying, there are some other kind of cultural norms that actually work against that in our community. I mean, one of, you know, my, you know, in, in one of our previous episodes, I, I talked about the passing of my uncle uh, due to mm -hmm. COVID, uh, David Sam, mm -hmm. while his wife, Mary Sam, you know, my aunt through marriage, you know, she is also a social worker and she works up at uh, Central Lakes College. And, and so she actually kind of does that kind of same thing too. So, so it's not just, I'm not the only social worker there, there happens to be a couple mm -hmm. of us, but mm -hmm. I mean, I think your overall message though, however, is important because, you know, when I was on sabbatical and uh, the question that I was looking to have answered was, did uh, folks in the American Indian community think we need more native American social workers? And the response was overwhelmingly yes, mm -hmm. but that mm -hmm. you can't start recruitment of that like in high school, that it has to begin in elementary school, in grade school, that you actually have to start planting those seeds then. I think the ban, you know, and, 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 uh, and for a reservation like Mille Lacs and other other reservations throughout the country, we're kind of drifting away because the emphasis here is on Sarah being teacher of the year. But I think that individuals like her kind of help feed into that because she's aware of those kind of things and can help raise that awareness. But I think every, every reservation in the country 
every rural community. This goes beyond just reservations. This is a rural issue. You know, how do you get those young people who leave their small towns, who leave their reservations, who get educated, how do you entice them back? I mean, Sarah's the exception. You know, when I read that she was born and raised her entire life in Onamia and she moved back on her own, that doesn't happen that often. That does not happen. She is a gem in a pile of coal. That just does not happen. And she needs to be commended for that. And, uh, but I, you know, I'll leave my comment there because that, you know, that opens all kinds of stuff. But the fact that you're one of those few who actually returned to such a small town to do what you're doing is absolutely incredible. And you need to be commended for that. I think it just ties back to, you know, you talked about how do we plant those seeds in elementary and some of those things that, that we talked about earlier, like letting the kids see themselves in curriculum, making sure that they have somebody who's aware of their cultural, cultural identity and beliefs, making sure that I'm bringing people into our building, like the Mille Lacs band DNR. Um, I had somebody who, who came in to talk about Ojibwe language with our students so they can see that there are people in these roles and seeing themselves reflected in that hopefully will draw them back to the community or bring them to a community where they can share those gifts and those, that knowledge because whether they choose to come back to the community or go elsewhere, the goal is to move forward and make sure that we set our students up for success in whatever capacity they choose. But how do we get those students to follow that path and, and to have that as a lifelong goal? Because you're right for me, I, I am a pretty, pretty rare situation where I came back to a community of 800 people. There's not a lot of people who choose to go back to their community. They say, you know, oh, there's nothing left for me there. And I'm actually writing my commencement speech. So I'm going to speak at um, the high school graduation here in a couple weeks. And I'm really thinking about my message to kids. And this is what the community gave you. What can you do with that to pay it forward? That's kind of what I'm, I've been thinking about the last few few days. You know, Sarah, you inspire us and, and you know, thousands of millions of people around our, our, our state and our country with, with your journey and your commitment to education. So who is, and, and the children, of course, you know, in the school district, the community, I mean, the list is long. Who inspires you? Who inspires you to continue this work? Who and what? Um, I'm really interested in, in hearing your responses to that. So I know that I had an acceptance speech, kind of. Some people told me it sounded like a speech. I just hoped it sounded like words uh, because I was so overwhelmed when I received the award that I just hoped I went up there and said words that made sense. Words that were words. Um, <laughs> but the first person I think was my mom because my mom was an immigrant to this country. Um, she was purchased through an arranged marriage situation. Um, and I'm the youngest of 15 kids. And so just knowing that my mom made sacrifices in her generation so that I didn't have to, and that's that's one story. I mean, what are my students living? What are these these other people whose voices are so silenced? What are they living? What are their experiences? And so I just think about that when I say yes to an activity or say yes to to fulfilling a role in our community. And then of course, like my husband um, and my husband is, he identifies as white. He's a white male. And so he lives a very different life than I do. 
and has had a very different set of experiences than I have. And he's also tries to be culturally aware and sets an example of someone who goes to have those tough conversations because those, that's what I think is holding a lot of people back is there, there's a level of anxiety about being somebody who identifies as white or somebody who is white and going to speak to a person of color because they think that they're going to offend that person. But I couldn't think of anybody who identifies as a person of color. If somebody came to me and said, I just need to ask you questions. I just need clarifications. I just need communication. There is no question that I would say that's a dumb question or that's a stupid question. They're there to better themselves and to better what they are doing for our kids. So I think just opening those lines of communication, and I know I'm kind of segueing off of people that inspire me, but but that's what it takes is this open communication. And, and so people like my husband and people like my mom and people like my teaching partner, Cindy Martin, she is amazing. And she's so open to being culturally aware and making sure that we provide the best experience for these kids every year, year after year, regardless of their socioeconomic status, regardless of race, religion. And so we just work so hard to provide that. So those are like the big three. My mom, um, my husband, and then my teaching partner, Cindy Martin. Does your, um, does your mom still live in Onamia? She snowbirds because she said it gets too cold <laughs> in Minnesota. So she, she now goes south. So she's, she's back in Onamia right now. Um, she'll stay till about October, November when it starts, when the snow starts to fly, then she goes south. Um, so she hangs out for a few months in Onamia and then she kind of goes to California and goes that route. Yeah. Cause I was wondering, like, I think a lot of people, especially like when they come from small towns, they go to college and they want to go to the big city and they want to go, you know, uh, I was working down in Worthington a few years back um, and all the high schoolers that I was talking with, they're all like, oh, we just want to go to the city. We just can't wait to go to the city. You know, so you going back, like instead of like, oh, go to the big city and and do all the great work there. I think like Don was saying is so commendable. And maybe part of it is like, you know, Asian cultures is like, you got to go back to your parents. You can't live too far away from your parents, right? But um, just that that idea of like, you know, and, and were you, and I don't know this, but were you married before you went back to Onamia? Or did you meet your husband there? I, 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 yeah, I've actually, we're going into our 11th year of marriage. I married my husband at 20. Um so I was pretty young when I got married, not, not compared to my mom. Cause my mom mm-hmm. was 13, but I was, I married pretty young. Um, and we were so, I mean, I call him the, the lottery ticket because we were so fortunate. I was so fortunate to find somebody who was able to grow and change and develop ideal ideals and morals that coincided with mine. And we came back to this community. My husband, um, is also very involved in our community. He's a volunteer firefighter. Um, EMR. He coached football. He works currently with um, the Family Healing Nexus. So they work with um, troubled youth and he it's a um, residential treatment facility. And so my husband actually works there as their recreational vocational manager. And he also makes sure, you know, he reaches out to the community and he looks for those resources because being married to me, he is aware. And I think regardless of if he wasn't, he still would, he's just that, that kind of person. He would seek out these resources, these people and, and all of these materials that he needs to provide his students with the best experience too. Yeah. I'm, I'm also married to a white guy. And so 
Like when we got married, he was living in in like the uh, Lynn Lake neighborhood of South Minneapolis. Which I don't know if you're familiar with this like hippy dippy, right? All the hipsters and stuff. And when we got married, I had a house in East St. Paul, which was extremely diverse. Um, and I was like, whose house are we going to sell? <laughs> and I was always like, well, you know, there's not an Asian grocery store within three miles, four or five miles from, of your house. So not that, you know, we're not, I'm not living there. So when he moved here and he talks about this a lot, it was like, it was the first time he really felt like a minority going, just going to the Cub Foods, you know, going to the grocery store and how different that was for him. And so hearing that story about your husband and how, you know, how different it was for him is just like reminding me of the experience that we had and kind of like forcing, not forcing, but obviously he chose to marry me. Um, but like forcing them to to really take a different look at their at their privileges that they've had, and like I tell them, I was like, if you you know you have to be, uh, like I can't be married to you if you don't have the same sensibilities on race as I do. It's just a given, like you know. So he totally understands that, but and he really loves when I do conisters because he says I get all my frustrations and talking to my people and my crew and so he loves when we do counter stories every week just for that purpose <laughs> my I will say I commend my husband because growing up as a minority this is something we live and experience every day and so you know we are we recognize that when we go to a group of people or when we are in a location that we may be the only person that identifies as we do but my husband who now gets drug into my family he said, I know it's hard, but it is also really hard to be the only white guy in a room full of people who are not white. And so I, <laughs> I commend him for that because it probably is tough, especially when, um, you know, we don't speak English all the time. And so he's like, mm. we have two other white brother-in-laws, so he's not too alone in that sense. <laughs> <laughs> and then, but then looking at that, he says, that happens so few and far between. That's just a very small taste of what it's like. And that kind of ties back to that anxiety people have about talking to people of color. Like, why mm -hmm. do people have that, that sense of discomfort with just having a conversation? I think that's what one of the biggest barriers we need to tackle is just open communication between those who are educating our kids, which is currently 95% white educators, and the people and the resources that they need to have those conversations with. You know, what you and, and Lee were just talking about without naming it is about belonging, right? And what that belonging feels like or whether belonging is even a part of the experience, right? Belonging in a, in a larger sense. Uh, and Lee, I'm so glad that you, you know, one of your examples spoke to food because that was one of the other questions in my mind. Sarah, you identify as Filipina and... You know, I know when I was in, in law school in Iowa, um, we didn't have local grocery stores that had, uh, you know, authentic Mexican ingredients. Uh, you know, everything, you know, the anglicized version is is just, it's, it's, an, it's a deal breaker. There's no way that I was going to buy food that was not authentic, right? Just my, my uh, cultural upbringing. Um, so what is that? What is that like for you living in Onamia as a Filipina? And and I know you grew up there, you know. But something as simple as connecting to ingredients at your grocery store that you can identify with and feel that you belong. 
um, I mean, what was that like? What is it like now? Well, Onamia is, we don't actually have a grocery store. Um, so that's tough because Onamia, the town of Onamia doesn't even have a place where I can go buy fresh produce. The, the closest place is probably Malacca and that's still about a 20 to 25 minute drive. Um, so we're kind of like a geographical oddity. I always call Onamia the geographical oddity. We're an hour from everywhere. So we're an hour from St. Cloud. We're an hour from Brainerd. We're an hour from, you know, here and there. And so it is, it is kind of tough because once I get to a grocery store, are they going to have things that reflect how I identify and reflect my values and reflect what I view as, Hey, this is something I grew up with. And so we do, I mean, I spent a year um, when I was doing my student teaching practicum, I spent a year in Northeast Minneapolis because I knew that I needed to experience a more diverse population. And so I spent a year at what was Sheridan Magnet Arts School and the population diversity was amazing. And it was probably one of the toughest experiences of my life. But knowing that there were small like pockets of places that could reflect those kids and just seeing how they felt being immersed in their culture and their identities in the cities, it is tough in Onamia. Um, to see that here. So I do end up driving, I drag my husband with me. There's like Filipino market in Moundsview. There's um, the Vietin market in St. Cloud. So there are a few places that I go, but I think it's important, like you said, even for something as simple as food, um, do the kids see that here? Do the kids see that reflected in themselves? I mean, we don't even have a grocery store. I get my eggs from my neighbor and I make my own bread at home because I can only go somewhere maybe once a week to go grocery shopping. But how do we also make that possible for our kids? So Sarah, I'm going to jump in here real quick. So that, uh, just so that, um, uh, your neighbors who live in Garrison and Isle, uh, you neglected to mention them. They got the, they got their little stores still, I think left. I think there's still one in Garrison and Teal's is an Isle. But oh, when yeah, I, right. when I lived up there, you're correct. However, in order to get close to anything that you would really like you'd have to go to, we always went to Brainerd and, um, but it is totally isolated. And in the last 20, 30 years, you know, many of the, um, mom and pop shops in Onamia have closed. Yeah. And, and, and so Onamia, you know, was slowly becoming a ghost town and, but yeah, I think I, I was kind of patiently waiting because, you know, I'm still stuck on when we were talking about trying to entice youth to return back to those communities. And, and you know, because that, that's always an issue. I mean, when I was commissioner at Mille Lacs, we opened up a brand new um, health care facility in our uh, Lake Lena location. And Lake Lena is located right on the, it's uh, about 20 miles east of Hinkley, right on the Minnesota-Wisconsin border, beautiful healthcare, urgent care facility. We had the dream of being able to uh, bring in one or two ambulances. Um, we were made uh, there. There, the uh, there used to be. I'm, I'm trying to remember who ran the. There, there was a, a boys' camp located right next to our res there. And they contracted with us to provide healthcare services. And we built that brand new facility. And I was unable to hire anyone 
to come and work. I was unable to hire doctors. I was unable to hire nurses. And there were, you know, multiple variables, but one um, we're only, it was only still only about an hour and a half North of the twin cities. It's hard to compete against those salaries Two, housing. We couldn't, I couldn't offer housing. We don't have housing enough to house all our band members who live on the res. And I sure couldn't offer housing to any, to entice anyone to come work. And, you know, and there's just a limited number of possession uh, of, uh, of uh, positions. So, you know, that's always one of the battles that small towns and, and, and rural areas have is being able to compete with salaries, housing stock that may be old or just doesn't exist. And even when we talk about teachers or social workers, we're only talking about one or two, right? We're only talking about one or two positions. It's not like we're talking about filling a whole department. So when we, I mean, I'm just pointing these things out. So even though we can, even though we we need to um, excite our children about looking for those uh, those type of positions to become teachers, the Mille Lacs Band has its own schools, runs its own government and has all those positions, but it's not an unlimited amount. And so, you know, when you throw that on top, it becomes hard. You are an exception to the rule, right? Because even in your elementary school, how many teachers does your elementary school employ? There's two per grade level and a couple, you know, a few sped teachers, four specialists. So I'd say probably no more than 25. Exactly. Limited number. And, um, and so how do you, you know, how do we excite those kids to ensure that they come back and fill those jobs? And I think that's something that falls on us, you know, something that falls. And I think you're doing a great job so far in trying to ensure that that's happening. And I just want to commend you for that. So then kind of going off of that track. So I'm also president of the Onamia Area Civic Association. It's another hat that I wear. Um, And we are for the betterment of the manufacturing, mercantile, commercial, um, and socioeconomic status of Onamia and its trade area. And it's interesting that you mentioned things like housing and things like food availability, because I, we just in the last year wrote a letter of um, business support for the Mille Lacs band because they're coming in with that red willow housing um, right off 169 there where meet on Mille Lacs used to be. And I think that's going to open up so many opportunities for our small town and then hopefully moving towards things like getting a grocery store because, and, and I, there's a term for it. And a lot of people use the term food desert because for these families who don't have enough money to buy or go to a grocery store an hour away, because honestly, having lived that lifestyle for eight years, there there was a week where I think our grocery budget was 10 bucks. And my husband went and shopped at the dollar store for groceries. And I will, I will tell you, we did not buy salad or carrots because that was way more expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, So then the cheaper option, the way to stretch our budget was to buy foods that weren't the healthiest. And so we need to also look at those resources because for people who live in this area, if they can't get an hour away, how are they getting those, how are they getting nutritious food to their children? How are we providing that? And what are we doing to assist those families? I know that some of the programs in our school sends home food with our kids. 
Um, but again, with the, the issues of housing and, and food availability, and then it, it just like it snowballs into this big effect. And you say, well, why can't that family provide a proper, stable home? How can they? So it's interesting that you bring that up because I, I see both sides. I'm an educator and then I work for the business side. And I just, again, so many hats allows me to see this big picture of how everything has an effect on all of these little things that we try to change every day. And how come that child can't do its, their homework at home when they don't have uh, Wi-Fi, right? They don't have, I mean, so, you know, those are, those are real life issues that, um, that, folks, that folks struggle with in that area because, you know, a lot of that area isn't one. I mean, you can, my phone doesn't work when I drive around up in Mille Lacs often. You know, I lose coverage. So if you lose phone coverage, you know, so I mean, so there are just many variables involved there. And again, I yeah, I didn't mean to sidetrack us, but the fact that I brought that up and then you're also leading the civic, <laughs> you just blow me away. I mean, you just absolutely I mean, blow we, me away. We are going to keep an eye on you, Sarah Lancaster, because, you know, this is not going to be the last time we hear about some awards you're winning. I'm so sure. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to join us. I know you're going to be off doing another school event in just a few minutes. Um, congratulations on being a Minnesota Teacher of the Year. I, you know, I think Thank you. obviously we learned today why um, and all the amazing things that you do and continue to do for our kids and all the teachers out there who continue to do all the things they do for our babies um, with the limited resources that they have. Um, you know, as we kind of sign off, is there any sort of last message that you just want to give to teachers out there? I just want teachers to think about the whole experience of the child, of your students. What are they experiencing? What are they going through? And, and how can you connect with them? Have that communication because that is how we, we reach for success with all kids. Awesome. Thank you so much. I'm Holly Lee, owner of the Other Media Group and producer of Counter Stories. I'm Don Eubanks, associate of Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Banner with Ghibli Indians. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the state of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I've stated are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. And our special guest, Sarah Lancaster, Minnesota 2022 Teacher of the Year. Thanks for joining us. This has been Counter Stories, a co-production of the Counter Stories crew, the other media group, and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For a full conversation, please visit counterstories.com.